Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we work together to bring you the best science show around. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio on 2SER, broadcast on 107.3 FM in Sydney, Australia, and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can podcast our show on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. So this week, we're going to hear from Professor Simon Gechte of the University of Nottingham about the psychology of cooperation. The interesting thing is, can unrelated strangers who don't know each other, are they able to cooperate to the common benefit? And um, if, you're, if you're outside my network, you certainly have no right to punish me. Yeah. So go home, leave me alone. But first, let me introduce my hopefully very cooperative panel. We've got James Bourne, Mick Cavazzini, Julianne Popple, and myself. So guys, have you heard any good news this week? There's a species of butterfly in the Amazonian forests called uh, Helioconus pneumata. Now, this particular species exhibits a really interesting form of mimicry, where it mimics another species that's rather unpalatable or toxic to uh, predators, such as birds. So this particular species not only mimics one other species, but up to seven different types of um, morph morphs. Uh, the same, the same animal can change, or just within the species, different within the species. Mm-hmm. So within a population, or within the species as a whole. Yeah. So it's not like the T one thousand. Not quite, not okay. quite that advanced, but still pretty impressive because most cases of mimicry, it's just one species mimicking another, but this one's mimicking up to seven species and not even close relatives too. It's mimicking species of a quite distantly related Melanea family. Uh, what are we looking at here? A butterfly that can then change into a different type of butterfly? No, it, it's, it's still the same species, but it just looks different. It appears different. It has different colour patterns on its wing. If the predator eats, eats one, say, butterfly, and gets sick, it's not going to want to eat any more of those butterflies. So if in a particular region predators learn to recognise a particular wing colour pattern, it's going to strongly select for that wing colour pattern in that area. So you're going to see a lot of... Um, regional variation between populations where some will exhibit one morph and others will exhibit another morph. And that's going to depend on what other species that are unpalatable are in that area. Its offspring could develop into one of the other morphs because it's, it's controlled actually by a super gene. Mm. So it's like a cluster of genes. It's like a flicking a switch, you know. So cool. certain uh, genes will be activated in order to produce an overall morphology that's adapted to that particular environment. (laughs) Science made fascinating, weird, disturbing and fun. Diffusion. And now on to our feature. So Mick, can you explain to me why we just can't seem to get along? Well, I don't know if I can, but a couple of weeks ago I met Professor Simon Gechter of the University of Nottingham who was giving a lecture at the uh, Sydney University Sydney Ideas Forum. And he started life as an economist, a professor of macroeconomics at the University of Zurich. But now he's 
a professor of the psychology of economic decision-making. And this is because he uses classic sociology and psychology models to test why people do or don't cooperate. I mean, classically, you think of the selfish gene uh, story that uh, Richard Dawkins told in the 70s that would suggest that we should only take care of ourselves and our families because you know, that's in our interests. Or even you know, philosophers like David Hume in the 17th century described homo economicus, who's, you know, it's, it's rational just to be selfish. But that's not true. People do cooperate in some environments. And so he wants to know why, what makes people cooperate, and how do you get people to cooperate for the the common good rather than yeah than the selfish uh, motives. So he uses an experiment called the public goods game. And just to see if this really works, we're going to run through the public goods game with the four guinea pigs in the in the studio here. So let me explain. First I'm going to give you $20 each. And at each round of the game, you're allowed to chip into the public pot. Whatever you chip in, obviously that comes off your $20. And then I, the banker, will double that amount and then redistribute it equally. So every round you get some back from from your little tax. And we play the round uh, we play the game through 10 rounds and we we see who's you know, who's prepared to give up something for the public good but also that gets redistributed back to them like you know like healthcare like um, like good roads like education or who prefers just to keep the money for themselves to buy their plasma TVs and and their holidays to Noosa. And just to make this a little bit more realistic so that we're not just playing with Monopoly money, there's a very tangible prize here in the form of a chocolate bar. I can't name the chocolate bar for uh, because this is community radio, but let me just say that it's in a yellow package with slightly pyramidal-shaped pieces and a little nougaty, caramel-y bits in the middle. And it's delicious. So, you know, if this isn't enough of a real-life reward for winning the public goods game, I don't know what is. So let's kick off. Round one, I'm going to get you each to scribble, so no one else can see. Scribble in the first box to tell me how much you're going to invest in the public purse. All right, now hold them up for me so I can scribble them down. So James has been pretty generous. He's given me $10. Julianne's given me 5 And v- Victoria, the, the mean girl, has only put in 2 Trust the American. So that's 17 all up. Oh, I'm going to double that. 34, divide that by 3. I'm going to give you back each $11. Another quarter comes round. It's spring is in the air. James, how are you feeling, feeling this, this time? Look, I have to admit, I'm feeling increasingly less and less generous as I see the other people around me sort of stinging their way out. Oh, gee. And like at the start there, you know, I figure oh, I'm in a high tax bracket in Australian terms. That's, you know, 49% of my income to tax. That's, that's, that's reasonable, but no. Maybe maybe not everyone else wants to do that. You feel so. like you're wearing it. So so what, what's this brought you down to? Look, I, I, I think a nice conservative sort of investment is 20 to 25% of what I have at the moment. But, you know, we'll see if that trend continues through. Um, so, look, I've got $26 as, as we speak, and I think I'm going to invest six of them dollars. Six bucks, six bucks. <laughs> So how's everyone doing? How's everyone balance book at the moment, James? Uh, I've I've managed to hit thirty four dollars, which is um, which is a solid return. I, I'm enjoying the interest that the bank's paying. It's getting getting in there, mm. Julianne. Uh, I'm I'm at thirteen unless I've done my math wrong. No, it seems right. You've done thirteen. Thirteen. How's that possible? How's possible? You've been too nice. Yep, been too nice. Apparently, 
Oh, I'm at 47. Ka-ching. <laughs> I must be doing it wrong. Well, no, maybe... Maybe you're just doing it really, really mm. correctly. Maybe really, really right. Maybe. I've just been giving 20 to 30% every round. All right. Uh, s- the summer cycle season comes around and uh, everyone's feeling good. It's almost Christmas. James, how are you feeling? Look, it's Christmas time, so um, I figure... Let's try and invest as much money as possible to try and increase my return. And I figure everyone else might be on that boat as well. So I've put $10 into the kitty this time around. Good on you, James. What about you, Juliana? One. I'm feeling the pinch. Ooh, only one. You've got to save up for all those Christmas presents, don't you? I'm putting in $8. Steady and true. Bit of variety here. $19 all up. Double that to get... 38. I'm going to give each of you $14 back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How are we going? Around nine. It's going okay. What's going to happen now, James? It's getting super competitive, but uh, I'm going to go 15 this round. Ooh. It's not. Yeah, I might throw in 20 this round. Ooh, big pressure at the end of the game. I'm putting in 15. $100. That's $33 each. So pressure's on now. There's the the sweat is tangible in the studio. What do we got? Uh, Show uh, us the chocolate, Nick. <laughs> We're at round ten. Shall we do the big reveal? Victoria, what's your final score? One twenty nine. Ching. One sixteen. One twenty two. Oh, oh so, close. so close. So close. And yet so far. Yeah, I know. The chocolate's mine. But really, damn accounting error. <laughs> So you can see the uh, greed has all bubbled to the surface. Victoria is the proud winner of the chocolate bar, but really what we're interested in is not the final score, what people finally won, but actually how their behaviour changed over the over the 10 rounds. So let's quickly plot the donations that people made to the taxman over time. All right, Mick, so how did we go? So mouths full of, full of chocolate. Let's analyse the behaviour. You guys showed. So Julianne started kind of conservatively around the $5 mark, crept up to $8, and then sort of stabilised around $10, $12. James was pretty generous. From the beginning, around the $10 mark, crept up to $12, $15. And Victoria, surprisingly, very mean and sceptical at first with 2 and $5 contributions, started whacking it out at $10, $15, even $18. But unfortunately, I have to say you guys have failed the experiment. Uh, your behaviour was very atypical when compared with lab experiments performed by Simon Gechter and others. Most people start out, you know, on, a, on average, people start out around the $10 mark. And then as they see each round, they, they're actually getting ripped off. There's plenty of free riders in the room that are not chipping in. They get less and less generous. And on average, the donations trickle down to like $3 by round 10 why do you think that is? I mean, is it just that we're really bad at math? Which I think this experiment has also established. Well, that's actually the question I ask Professor Gechter. And his answer is that we are what, what he terms conditional cooperators. Uh, we believe, based on our research, is that um, most people are conditional, what we call conditional cooperators, which means they are willing to contribute, provided others contribute as well. So they form a belief, an expectation of what others will do. Then they try to match that to some extent, and if they, you know, and some people just never do that. They never contribute, you know, because they see because individually you always earn more by keeping your money. Collectively, you know, it's it's it, it everybody benefits if people contribute, and this is exactly the feature 
that underlies many of these real-world uh, issues that I was uh, alluding to before. Well, that, that there's a, a difference between private interest and collective interest. And this is mimicked here. And I think the, the reason why cooperation is you know, fragile or collapsing eventually is, has to do with the fact that uh, the conditional cooperators realize that others are not chipping in or contributing or helping as much as, they sh as the conditional cooperators would like them to do. And then they are disgruntled and disappointed and uh, they d reduce their contribution and this makes the whole thing collapse. Yeah. So what do you reckon, guys? It sounds like you, you're more uh, generous than the average bear. Well, I think for me, a lot of it had to do with precedent. When I saw that Julianne and James were putting in bigger amount of bucks, that really motivated me to increase my givings as well. If, say, Julianne had said, nah, I'm going to give zero every single time, I would have been pretty pissed off and I probably wouldn't have contributed. Well, in, in fact, you're right. He says that... Uh even if you play the game just one round, but you tell people that everyone else in the previous round chipped in a certain high amount, they will feel some sort of social pressure to comply. So it seems like everyone's a conditional cooperator. But in the real world, you don't pay your taxes just because you're a nice person, let's be honest. You pay because you might get busted if you don't. And, you know, the same goes for many real-world scenarios. So how, how do you think your behaviour would have changed if you had the chance to punish Victoria for being tight? If you could dock $3 of hers simply by chipping in an extra dollar yourself? I think it would. Th you've got more to lose, so you would definitely have to play much more aggressively. For sure. For sure, yeah. That's capitalism. Let's see what uh, the real-life data says. Yeah, in the public schools game, we take a stylized version of this, and this means that um, it, it's a sort of a model of social, informal social sanctions, where everyone can punish, ostracize, criticize, ridicule anyone else. And in the experiment, we make it monetary to make it costly for people to do it, which, makes, which means that they have less of an incentive to do it, and certainly selfish people, uh, people who want to maximize their monetary earnings, would never do it. And for that reason, we modeled it that way. And it turned out that this, uh, many people were actually willing uh, to do this punishing, which is an interesting phenomenon, because if you think about it, if punishment influences people's behavior, that is, they contribute more to the common good, then that's a public, punishing is a public good. It's providing a public good, because others will benefit. If I punish, I incur the costs, and all the others benefit. But the question then is, if people are not able to provide the first public good, the underlying public good, as we have discussed before, why then are they willing to provide the second public good? So theoretically, yeah, we shouldn't observe this punishing because it's costly, it's a public good, why do it? But people do it, and, they, and this public good doesn't deteriorate. So if, even if we uh, repeat this experiment for many rounds, as many rounds as 50, people are still willing to do it. So isn't that weird that... You know, people won't donate to charity, but they'll happily spend money to put people in prison. Obviously, in the in the real world, there are you know other complex psychologies at work and social pressures and so on. And uh, Professor Gector even told me that if you just make people promise, say say the words, "I promise to do this," "I promise to chip in that," it does make people more likely to to chip in. 
then you can, because of all the cultural and social aspects, you can imagine that people in different countries might behave differently, right? I mean, I've seen people, 50 people in London queue for a bus stop, at a bus stop. I've seen Germans standing on the side of the road waiting for the little green man, even though there wasn't a car in sight. Whereas in Italy, where I come from, forget about it. Everyone's in it for themselves. Everyone's trying to scam the system. So if you played the public goods game in across the world in Seoul, Copenhagen, Minsk, who do you guys reckon would be the least cooperative cities? Uh, without punishment, it was Melbourne, I have to say, and the Athens, I think, and uh, Nottingham, so, and, um, and Istanbul were the four least cooperative uh, cities without punishment. With punishment, the situation changed completely. Athens remained the most selfish place. Uh, without with punishment, Nottingham and Melbourne increased their contributions a lot, and uh, and Istanbul also remained at very low levels. So this is fascinating because they are, you know, these participants they all play the exact same game. So the stakes are the same. Everything is exactly the same. They behave very similar without punishment. They contribute little. You add the punishment option, they behave very differently, radically differently, which is, uh, you know, and, and when this is not, this, this is just fascinating. And it seems to have to do something with this society-wide social norms. But how exactly and why and so on, uh, we don't know yet, but uh, we, have, we have the data and they seem to suggest this. Well, it, it is surprising indeed that the, the behaviours separate along let's say, cultural or ethnographic lines. You've actually surveyed attitudes towards these norms of civic cooperation in a worldwide survey. What kind of questions did you ask and what did you find from these studies? So it was not me who did this. This is the so-called World Value Survey, which is uh, uh, run in 60, 70 or 80 countries by now all over the world, sampling representative populations, representative samples from these different societies. And they are asked um, things like, uh, do you think it's justified to evade taxes? Do you think it's justified to uh, dodge uh, fares on public transport or to claim welfare benefits you're not entitled to? Some people rate this, you know, how justified it is to do these things. And these are the, this, you know, these are the data we use in our study because uh, the countries around the world differ quite a lot along these dimensions. And, but they are interesting because they reflect, uh, um, that's our argument, they reflect society-wide levels of uh, social norms of cooperation because all these issues in tax morale, public transport, the welfare system are public goods, are real-world public goods. You know, if people don't pay their taxes, then this means you know, they, they might be able, because nobody can be excluded from going to the hospital or using public transport or the roads and other public infrastructure, but if they don't pay their taxes, this means they are free riding on those services that others have to fund, to, somebody has to fund them. And um, so I, we thought these, these, these attitudes that people hold here, they, they reflect how the social norms in the society work with regard to these issues. I always knew it, Melbourne's a stingy, miserable, rainy place. But they respect authority. It'd be interesting to see how this sort of mapped in a place like Pyongyang, or like old school Stalingrad or Leningrad or somewhere where the monetary system is almost foreign to people just because of the way that the state controls all the affairs. 
Well, actually, to be fair to Turkey and to Istanbul, according to this World Values Survey, they they seem to know that cheating on the bus or cheating taxes is wrong, but they have little trust that the system will do anything about it. Is it like a, a fear of being swindled by a corrupt government? Because obviously that would decrease your, your motivation to pay taxes. I think that's it, that they don't think anything will be done about it. Cool. But finally, I guess what we really want to know is what this experiment tells us about real-world interactions. How can we predict or change the way people behave with, with real-world problems like, like tax evasion or the, the biggest one of all, the question of climate change? He calls this the biggest public goods game of all. Does this model suggest that you need some global policeman to sanction against those that don't help out in cutting their carbon emissions? I mean, sanctions definitely will not work. I don't think we can use them. We have to have some other solution. Because, um, I mean, the United States, just as an example, they will never accept any sort of, uh, you know, whatever the government is, I think. You know, who knows what happens in 50 years, but... Uh, you know, they have not accepted the international courts for uh, war criminals and things like that, so they don't want to do this. And the Kyoto Protocol was in place. It was uh, you know, broken by m- many countries, not just the United States. The United States never signed it. So I don't think that uh, enforcement will work in uh, much sanction- through sanctions much. But I do think is what the West ought to do is to setting a good example and to move ahead by showing that they are doing something and then that they do their part and then maybe they can convince in a few years the developing countries. Yeah. So in the term so in the terminology of the game model, in the public yes. goods game, do you believe that a if a culture does start to develop of individual sacrifice for the public good? Does your game model give you any hope that others will follow suit or will, will, yeah. will the cooperation fall apart regardless? Well, I mean, it, it's always going to be fragile. I mean, that's what I believe. And it has to be sustained by, uh, maybe to some extent, by strong social norms. In some, in some aspects, for example, there, there is hope. Uh, in, 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 in many European countries, there are strong norms again for, uh, in favour of recycling, not just throwing your waste somewhere. And uh, so, the, and it took a while to establish those norms, but um, now they more or less work. So it's not impossible to change norms, but um, I, I think it's a it's a very very difficult problem because it it has to be done at the country level. Then you have to enforce it at the local level somehow, which is politically difficult because uh, you know, I mean. People on the street, they say, why should I not use my car? And the big companies are allowed to, you know... Uh, you the, know same, to the same psychology manifests yes, at the I think, local I, I level. Think, I think that will happen. So people say, the conditional cooperation, so everybody, you know, the, the, I think the trick of this is to ensure that most people, majority, play, get, play the game and play their part, you know, particularly the big players. I mean, I don't think without the United States and Europe, particularly in the uh, United States, not being on board in this climate uh, thing, I can't see how this uh, will work very well. I have to say I'm a bit skeptical from what we know from the behavioral economic side. But I do think is what the West ought to do is to setting a good example and to move ahead by showing that they are doing something and then that they do their part 
and then maybe they can convince in a few years the developing countries. Yeah, that, that, that was really interesting to see the way that this situation applies, I think, for us to the current political climate in Australia surrounding the entire climate change issue. Yeah, you see it quite predominantly. I mean, when politicians look at what Australia is contributing in terms of carbon outputs uh, relative to what other countries are contributing, you see the argument a lot in the media, oh, why should we reduce our emissions by X percent if such and such a country isn't reducing their emissions by X percent? So it's a, a very similar psychology that's happening on an international country by country scale. So I wonder if that makes Australia and the US the uh, the Athens and the Turkey of the example that you know we just won't respect the social norms. Unless maybe you could get sent to jail for not cutting your carbon emissions by a certain percent domestically. We could somehow make that uniform across the world or something. When you're relying on people to just do it out of the good of their heart for the future of the, the planet, there's always going to be that sort of vision of my money in the here and now. So... Yeah. Well, but there is that small window of social norms. If, if actually Europe and China might be doing more than, gee, maybe we're we're obliged to chip in a bit better. Which is what you guys were saying when you were playing the game, right? I, I didn't want to be the, the seen to be the stingy one. Mm. But there need to be sanctions associated with being the stingy or seen to be the stingy one. I mean, what what has America really lost from not? ascribing to the Kyoto Treaty. Just a lot of respect. <laughs> but other than that, nothing really. I'm afraid we haven't solved any global problems for the time being, but uh, that was uh, Professor Simon Gechter, who has a lot of interesting things to say about uh, why we do or don't get along. And that's all the time we have for this week on Diffusion. I'd like to thank our guinea pigs, Mick Cavazzini, James Bourne, Julianne Popple, and... The show was co-produced by Mick and James this week, recorded in the studios of 2SER, broadcast in Sydney on 107.3 FM and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Remember to podcast our show at www.diffusionradio.com and email your suggestions and glowing feedback. Do make sure to join us next week for more Science Wondering on Diffusion Science Radio. Feed your mind on a feast of science treats in Ultimo in August. The Ultimo Science Festival has something for everyone. Children's activities, exhibitions and really interesting talks. It all happens five minutes walk from Sydney Central Railway and many events are free. Check out the program and book tickets at ultimosciencefestival.com. Ultimo Science Festival is proudly presented by 2SER.